Thank you for downloading the Sunday Sermon from October 13th, The Call of Elijah. For more information about Paragon Church, please visit paragonchurch.com. Just a quick refresher about what we've been doing for the past couple of weeks. We, uh, a few weeks ago, decided to merge in with the kids and the youth doing a thing called the Gospel Project. And the Gospel Project is a three-year walk through the Bible. And the kids have been doing it now for a little bit over a year, so we kind of merged in with them in the middle, and so we're about halfway through the Old Testament, and we're in the book of First Kings right now. We've been talking about a guy by the name of Elijah. Now, Elijah, we talked about all the things that God did to prep him, to prepare him, to get him ready to do one of the most epic showdowns in all of the Old Testament. And with Elijah, we also got to see what happened afterwards. We got to be with him in his ups. We got to be with him in his downs. We got to be with him all of the things as he had his life going on. And last week, last week we finished up with him getting ready to pass on his mantle, to get ready to pass on the job that he has onto, to, onto an intern, more or less. And he was kind of in this depressed state. He thought he was all alone. God says, guess what? I've got a plan, and I want to introduce you to a guy by the name of Elisha. And I'm going to be very careful to enunciate those today because it's so easy when you're going back and forth between Elijah and Elisha to get them wrong. So I'm going to do my best to do that. But what we've done over the past couple weeks is we've literally taken entire chapters and broken them down. The great thing about Elisha is really when we have to do three verses today. So if you have your Bibles with you, I would love for you to go to 1 Kings chapter 19. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, we are going to be looking at verses 19, 20, and 21. And so as you're heading there, um, I, I just really want you to see something today. Because something about Elisha is very much applicable to our own lives. And I want you today, and I'm praying that today, that God helps you see what is going on in Elisha's life also is taking place in your life. That there is this next step to take. This next step in what we're doing. See, since August, we've been talking about equipping and encouraging and engaging people to take the next step in their faith journey with Jesus. And so as we look at that, I want you to see this next step and what Elisha does and how it applies to us as well, no matter what that next step might be. See, I say that Elisha is a lot like us, and this is what I say, is because Elisha, when we meet him, and you'll see it here shortly in the verses that we read, is living a good life. He's living a good life, but God was calling him to something greater. He was living a good life, but God was calling to something greater. And, and what I want you guys to see is that most of us, if not all of us, are living the good life. We're living the good life. And if maybe somehow in there you're like, oh, I just don't, don't think I'm living the good life. I would like to send you out to some of the more impoverished areas in Rio Rancho, Albuquerque, New Mexico, the United States, and even more so if you go across the world. You'll see that we are living the good life, that we have the things that we need. And like the good life, and like the good life that we live, oftentimes that good life, and we're going to see it here with Elisha as well, that good life can get in the way of something greater. 
Because we can get comfortable in the good life. And it can become routine in the good life. That that something greater becomes something difficult for us to really want to attain. Even though that something greater is what God actually wants for us. See, the something greater might just cost you everything. And that's where it's scary. That's where we have this difficulty in it all. And there's some things I, I want to tell you even today... First of all, I'm glad you're here. And I've said that a couple of times, and I think the reason why I've said that a couple of times is because I believe that God doesn't make mistakes in his plans, and his plan for you to be here this morning, to hear what he has to say to you. You are here for a reason, or maybe you're listening online for a reason, if, if, if that's where you're at. In it, there's a second thing. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, or, or you've not fully committed to following him, I think today's message, I think today what we hear from Elisha is going to be the thing that is going to help you see and hear and hopefully even feel what Christianity really is all about. Because sometimes we get lost in what it is, uh, what Christianity is about, what's being offered, and even more so what's being asked of our lives. And that's the third thing. If you are here today and you are a Christian, I think today is going to be a great refresher on why we follow Jesus. And, and not just why we follow Jesus, but why we need to take that next step. And maybe for you, what that next step might look like. See, I'm going to give you right up front the point of the message. And I hope that as I say it to you, it doesn't turn you off to the rest of everything we're going to talk about today. Because the point of the message today is that following God means a total abandonment of our entire lives to God. A total abandonment of our entire lives to God. See, when, when God calls us to something greater, I told you it's going to be something possibly scary. And that's a scary thing to say out loud. But the thing about Christians, and the thing that, that I found myself at at a point in time in my life is this. I think a lot of us get interested in God because it seems like he could do something for our lives. Maybe you're at a place where you were in troubled times and he'd bring you peace. Maybe you're at a time of worry and he'd bring you comfort. Maybe uh, you, you've started a new family and this is the foundation that you want to build it on. It's amazing how many times I hear people that when they're in high school, they're fully involved in the youth group and then they get to college and everything kind of fades away. But when they get married and have kids, all of a sudden they come back to church because they want that foundation. They want that in their lives for their kids. And maybe it's just the assurance of heaven. And all these things are great things, but... See, we don't come to God for him to serve us. We don't come to get services from him. And I think what happens is we look at each of those things, the peace and the comfort and the foundation and the assurance, should turn us to him and help us understand that he alone is God and that he alone should be the center of our lives. That, that when we decide to follow Jesus, that we do need to come to that point of total abandonment, that we do need to repent from ourselves. Instead of just making God part of our top 10, the top 10 priorities we have, he kind of fits in there. Maybe number one, maybe number five, maybe number 10. It doesn't matter, right? It's all just in the top 10, so you're good with that. But when we have that mentality, we haven't given our lives to follow him. Instead, we have invited him to follow us. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not the way it's supposed to be. It, we need to shift from the it's all about me-centric mentality to it's all about him, and my life revolves around him. And that's what we see in the story of Elisha. 
So if you have your Bibles open, 1 Kings chapter 19, we're going to start in verse 19, and this is what it says. Elijah left there. And if you go back to what we talked about last week, we talked about Elijah being in the, under that broom tree and just being depressed and having all the things that were going on in his life and saying, I'm the only one left. And God says, no, you're not. As a matter of fact, here's the plan that I have for you. And one of those plans was for him to go and talk to Elisha. And it says this, Elijah left there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and he was plowing. Twelve teams of oxen were in front of him, and he was with the twelfth team. Elijah walked by him and threw his mantle over him. So I want to pause right here for just a second. I want you to see this idea of the good life. The good life that Elijah, or Elisha, was living. See, a lot of times I think we, we need to look a little deeper into the passage to see what exactly is going on here. How do we know he's living the good life? Well, first thing is we have to understand that he has at least 24 oxen. He has at least 24 oxen. Now, the common middle class family at the time had one. So he had 24. It's kind of like a middle class family having one car and then this other guy having 24 cars, okay? Or at least a handful of cars, uh, a couple of farm tractors, a razor, maybe one of those cool gators that go four-wheeling, all the things. like He had it all. He had all of these things. And then the second thing we see, it says he was with 12 teams, and he was with the 12th, which means there was 11 other teams that were out doing things, which means he had servants. So not only did he have all the oxen, he also had all the servants. Then if you go back up to where God tells Elijah to find him, it's actually uh, the birthplace of Abel Mahola. And that birthplace actually is a fertile area right next to the Jordan River. So he had oxen, he had servants, and he had amazing land. He had the good life. He had the good life. He had all of these things. I mean, it sounds like a good life for any of us, right? Have cars, have people serving you, and have a real nice plot of land that's right next to the river. I don't have any problem with that, would you? So when we look at this, we see that he has it all. But somehow, someway, maybe, and maybe you're in the same boat, I've been in this boat, there's a restlessness inside that even though you have the good life, there's got to be something more. There's got to be something that I am not quite being fulfilled with. There's got to be something out there. There's a restlessness that's in it. And maybe this is where you are. Maybe this is something you're trying to suppress. Maybe this is a place where you've been. But the next thing we see is Elijah comes and he throws his mantle, his, his cloak over him. Now, we've talked about this before, but your cloak defined who you were. It, it defined your vocation. And so when he threw his mantle over him, he's saying, I am going to pass this on to the next person. Elijah, the prophet, the prophet of God, who called down fire from heaven, is passing on his mantle to somebody else. Now, this may sound pretty cool. This may sound pretty, hey, you know what, I am really excited that, that I get to be the next man of God. I get to be the one who calls down the fire from heaven. But we have to remember where Elijah is at at this point in time. He is a wanted man. He is running from uh, Jezebel and Ahab. And he is also one who is being provided for by ravens and the one who was provided for by a widow and basically taking handouts. He, he can't provide 100% for himself. So what he's doing essentially to Elisha is saying, I know you've got the good life. 
I know that you have oxen, and I know that you have servants, and I know that you have land. I'm going to let you be a man of God that you're going to have to be poor. Uh, you're going to have to have some, some issues with being handed out to instead of taking care of yourself. Here you go. Anybody here up for that? Turning down the good life for something greater? Because as we will see, there's something greater that is, that is out there. And it may not be exactly the plan that we had for ourselves, but God is calling us to it. So how does Elisha respond? Well, that's what verse 20 says here. Elisha left the oxen, ran to follow Elijah, and said, please let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. Go on back, he replied, for, I, for what have I done to you? Basically saying, go do it. Go. Why, why am I standing in your way? Just, just go do it. So we returned back from following him. He took the team of oxen and he slaughtered them. With the oxen's wood yoke and plow, he cooked the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. So he goes back and he tells mom and dad, guys, I, I know that you provided all of this for me. I know you have given me everything, but Elijah has come and he's passed his mantle on to me. So I'm going to take the oxen, I'm going to cook them up. By the way, anybody want to go to Rudy's right now? Uh, he cooks up the oxen. He serves it to all the people. Now, a typical ox by itself would feed a family of five for a year and a half. I don't know if he cooked his two and left the other ones for the servants and his parents, or if he cooked all 24. I, I don't know exactly what that looked like. It doesn't go into great detail on that. But either way, he went and he had a big neighborhood barbecue. He provided for all the people around. And then it says this at the end of that verse. <clears throat> then he left, followed Elijah, and served him. So he left his wealth to become a servant of a prophet on the run. He left everything to become a servant of a prophet on the run. He went for something greater. Even though it doesn't sound like something greater, he went for something greater. Because what we need to see here today, as we look at Elisha, and as we look at our own lives, we are going to have to take steps to something greater, that next step mentality. But that path is going to go through a valley. And that valley is going to be of surrender and sacrifice and service. Because we see that in Elisha's life, or we can see it in our own. And oftentimes, you can see it in a guy like Moses, and you can see it in a guy like David. And really, you can even see it in a guy like Jesus. And soon, we'll see it in our lives as well. Surrender. What's Elisha do? He burns the plows. He cooked the ox. There was no maybe. There, there was no maybe. He cooked his old way of life and he ate it for dinner. Literally. No plan B. He was all in. He was all in. Surrender. Sacrifice. He didn't just have dinner. He fed everyone around him. He gave up all that really was probably his identity, all that he was his foundation, all that he found his worth in. He gave that up. And he was willing to take those steps, and he used it even more so to bless others, not himself, than service. You're the big dog on the farm. You're the big honcho. You're the CEO, and you say, you know what I'm going to do? I am going to go and serve a wanted man. I'm going to give up everything else. And as I serve that wanted man, I mean, he had everything he could possibly need to survive the rest of his life in comfort. 
And then he's going to go to a place where he was possibly going to be in need every day. And this internship position that he takes, if you go fast forward ahead to 2 Kings 2 when Elijah finally dies, it's 18 years. It's not like that mantle came on him and then boom, he's ready to go. It's 18 years of prep. 18 years of serving and getting coffee and, and doing the copies and doing the stapling. 18 years of being the man that is next to the man. That's pretty impressive and a pretty big step. I mean, it's similar to almost what we talked about last week with Elijah when we said he was isolated and then he became totally dependent and it transformed to an unconditional obedience. Same process taking place. And maybe, maybe that's what God's been doing in your life. Maybe this is where he's been working at. Maybe you haven't exactly seen it, because a lot of times we get to where we complain about what God is doing versus praising God wherever we're at. I've told you guys this before. 17 and a half years ago, I moved to New Mexico. But 18 years ago, I had zero plans of ever being in New Mexico or ever even visiting New Mexico. I used to drive through New Mexico on our way to Texas from Arizona and go, who would ever live here? That was my common response. Every time, hit Albuquerque and be like, ugh. And guess what? God just went, ha, 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 praise me in this storm. You know, that, that was the, but the reality is, is, is as my focus and as my perspective began to change, I got to see what God was doing. Instead of worrying about where I wanted to be, I realized that if I was faithful in the place that God had put me, Luke chapter 16 says, be faithful with a little and I'll give you much. And he has blessed me more than I could ever imagine. He, he has been able to, to use me in different areas and different people's lives more than I could ever. But when we get so caught up in the mundane, we lose sight of that something greater. When we get caught up in the, the desire for our own plan to be different, we miss the something greater. And I truly believe that God calls people. And as he calls people, these three things, the, the surrender and the sacrifice and the service, they're going to show themselves in their lives as characteristics of their lives as he continues to shape us and take us on those next steps. Sacrifice, surrender, service. When you became a Christian, is that what you signed up for? I, I just want you to think about that. When, when, when God called you to him, is that what you signed up for? I'm not sure if I could say yes. Because you know why I became a Christian? Because hell sounded bad. And heaven sounded better. And there was only one way I was told, so I went for that one way. Now, I've learned a lot since then. But that wasn't my initial thing. And guess what? It's not just surrender and sacrifice and service, because Jesus takes it up a notch. Jesus, I mean, we look at the Old Testament, and sometimes we look at the Old Testament and say, well, that was written for the Jews. And I'm not Jewish, so therefore it doesn't apply to me. Heard that argument, heard lots of things. I think there's lots of things we can learn from the Old Testament, or we wouldn't be going through it on a Sunday morning. But Jesus takes it up a notch. In Matthew 16, 24, in Mark 8, 34, and in Luke 9, 23. The Synoptic Gospels, he's recorded in saying this, and I'm going to read the one from Mark 8, 34. It says this, the, calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You've probably heard that passage before. I've used it lots of times before. But 
look at the taking up a notch, not just surrender and sacrifice and service, deny yourself. Deny yourself, which means not just saying no to all that you want, but yes to all that God wants for you. Deny yourself and take up your cross. When he's speaking to the people that are there, they know what the cross means. It's not just a piece of jewelry. It's not just some, some two-by-fours put together over here in the corner. It is the reality of an instrument of death, an instrument of oppression, an instrument that showed my will is gone. I have no decisions left. That is what it was all about. And notice, Jesus didn't pull any punches. He didn't say, by the way, if you do this, you're going to have your best life now. That was never in the cards. He was talking about the future, but he wasn't talking about now. There was no, here's how to be self-empowered. Here's how to, how to have the key to worldly success. None of that was in the middle of it all. He, he didn't take those steps. He said, if you want to find everything you've been looking for, follow me. But... And I think sometimes we forget that, but that means being willing to abandon everything else. That's a big step. And you know, of the three that I chose, I chose Mark chapter 8, verse 34 for a reason, because of the way it starts. It says these words, calling the crowds along with his disciples, he said to them. It wasn't just the disciples he was talking to, he was talking to everybody. There, there wasn't some elite few that says, if you want to be this type of disciple or this type of thing, then you can follow me. But if you don't, you can just kind of hang out over here casually. He's saying, do this to everybody. And I want to point out to you from this, as we look at Elijah, as we look at Elisha, and we look at Jesus, it's not that God wants you just to quit your job and sell everything and just give away all of your money. Now, he might be calling you to do that, but that's not, that's not the, the overall. What it is, is he's saying, I want you to truly trust me with everything, that there is nothing in your life that is off limits. That there's not one thing in your area you can say, well, I can give this to you, God, but not that. That's a hard place to be. If that was the way Christianity was sold to me when I was in junior high and I accepted Jesus as my personal Savior, I might have hit pause. And I told you up front, I'm glad you're here. And if you're not a Christian, I, I want you to hear what Christianity has to offer. But I also want you to hear what Christianity asks. And, and that's for your life. This is where God begins to take our life. And he begins to shift it to, to a life of sacrifice and service to Jesus. He, he begins to dig just a little deeper. And, and I don't know what that looks like in your life. Maybe it's going on a mission trip. Or maybe it's not just a mission trip. Maybe it's going on mission. Whether it be across the world or across the street. Maybe that's what God is calling you to. Maybe it's starting the application process for foster care. Maybe it's going even more broad than that and getting involved in the adoption process. Maybe it's serving in an area of ministry, of nursery, or kids, or youth, or adults. Maybe... It's just sharing the gospel with somebody you work with. We've got to begin to take that next step. Here's what I know. That as we fall more in love with Jesus, and as we follow him more and more, he's going to challenge us to take that next step. And sometimes that next step is going to be big, and sometimes that next step is going to be scary. See, once again, it's not about that best life now. It's about him shining through the life that we offer to him. 
It's about him using us for his glory and his honor. See, if I give him all my life, I can guarantee that he can do more with it than I can. And my guess is the same is true for you. What that looks like in life, like I said, I don't know. But my guess is that at the end of your life, when you stand before Jesus, and there'll be that day, maybe we won't be standing, my guess is we'll actually be kneeling. But that day that you're before Jesus, before God, our maker, you're not going to be able to say, well, I went to church 1.6 times a month, and every once in a while I dropped some tithe in that box. Thank you for blessing me and giving me the best life I could have now. Because there are preachers that actually preach that. that that's, he's not going to go, you know, great job. It's well done, good and faithful servant. That, that's not the way it's going to be. It's going to be, what did you allow me to do with your life for my glory? See, I think our lives should look probably more like James 1.27, where it says, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I love the Eugene Peterson message version when it says this, real religion The kind that passes muster before the God the Father is this. Reach out to the homeless and the loveless in their plight and guard against corruption from the godless world. You know what my version says? The the application version that I would say as I write notes down in my Bible. Give yourself away for those who can't pay you back and don't look for or hope for a pat on the back from the world in the process. Give yourself away for those who can't pay you back. Is James 1.27 what our life in Jesus looks like? Is it what your life in Jesus looks like? How, where, and why? Or why not? It's, it's a question as I look at Elisha and the things that he's giving up with the surrender and the sacrifice and the service. You know, are we asking Jesus to follow us? Or are we willingly following him where he wants to take us? So there's that path to something greater, and it starts with surrender and sacrifice and service. But that path then begins to transform, and we need to realize that along that path, the possibilities of something greater are only fully realized when we take bold steps of faith. Bold steps of faith. Let's read verse 21 again. So he, Elisha, turned back from following him, took the teams of oxen, and slaughtered them. With the oxen's wooden yoke and plow, he cooked the meat and gave it to the people when they ate. Then he left, followed Elijah, and served him. Is there an all or nothing faith step right there? Just a giant, bold step? There wasn't even a whole lot of time. Well, let me just pray about this for a couple of weeks. Let me just really see what God wants me to do. It was, boom. He took the bold step of faith. It was a full abandonment of the old way of life to take on what God wanted him to do. There's a book that was written in in the early 2000s by a guy by the name of Mark Batterson. And Mark Batterson's a a pastor in the uh, Washington, D.C. area. But he wrote the book called All In. And I remember reading it for the first time, and um, it kind of came to me as I I was looking through all this that he, he talked about a Spanish explorer. And I thought, hey, you know what? This is Columbus Day weekend or Indigenous Peoples Day weekend now that it's been changed to. Uh, but this, this whole uh, thing uh, that they talked about was, was a guy in 1519. And, and he told the story 
of a, a, a Spanish explorer by the name of Hernan Cortez. Let me read from you from the book and what it says. It says, says, on February 19, 1519, the Spanish explorer Hernan Cortez set sail for Mexico with an entourage of 11 ships, 13 horses, 110 sailors, and 553 soldiers. The indigenous population upon his arrival was approximately 5 million. From a purely mathematical standpoint, the odds were stacked against him by a ratio of 7,541 to 1. Two previous expeditions had failed to even establish a settlement in the New World, yet Cortez conquered much of the South American continent. What Cortez is reported to have done after landing is an epic tale of mythic proportions. He issued an order, burn the ships. As his crew watched their fleet of ships burn and sink, they came to terms with the fact that the retreat was not an option. Now, here's the thing. I have a hard time reading this story because what he ended up doing was morally horrible. He went and just slaughtered people and and began to just kill and pillage and murder. But if we can set that part aside of the story for just a second, what he did, there's a lesson to be learned. Here's what the book goes on to say. Nine times out of ten, failure is resorting to plan B when plan A gets too risky, too costly, or too difficult. That's why most people are living in their plan B. They didn't burn the ships. Plan A, people don't have a plan B. It's plan A or bust. They would rather crash and burn going after what God has told them rather than succeed at anything else. I'm not trying to hurt any feelings today. I'm not trying to to come across mean in any way today. But I think that we need to hear this at the same time. Some of us need to act more boldly in our faith. Some of us need to know that God has called us to something greater. Whether that be to go overseas on mission or to go across the street on mission or to resign your job and go to seminary. I I don't know what it is. Be willing to teach or lead in the church to start the adoption process. to, To do something bigger than ourselves. To get out of the good life. To go after something greater. To quit messing around with our good life and act boldly for something greater. You know, Jerome not too long ago spoke on the ten minas found in Luke chapter 19. And, and I'm not sure if you remember it, but, but basically the, the last person with the one mind that had hit it, Jesus comes back and calls him what? Does anybody remember the word he calls him? Wicked? A wicked servant. Not, not um, you know, unwise, not squandering, but wicked. You didn't take that next step. And, and I don't know exactly how to even say that without coming across in some way like, we got to take that next step because I don't want Jesus to go, I gave you all of this, you wicked servant. Take the risk. So Elijah passes on to Elisha the mantle. Elisha takes the risk. Let's fast forward 18 years. If you have your Bibles, flip over to 2 Kings chapter 2 for me. We're going to be reading just verses 7 through, 7 through 14. I told you we weren't going to be doing about much more than three verses, but I lied. Fifty men from the sons of the prophets came and stood, observing them at a distance, while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Elijah took his mantle, he rolled it up, and he slapped, struck the water, which parted to the right and to the left. Then the two of them crossed over the dry ground. 
When they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me what I can do for you before I am taken from you. So Elijah answered a crazy thing. Please let me inherit two shares of your spirit. Please give me a double anointing from God. And Elijah replied, you've asked something difficult. If you see me being taken from you, you will have it. If not, you won't. And they continued walking and talking in a chariot of fire. With horses of fire suddenly appeared and separated the two men. So like this giant hot air balloon comes out of the sky. And then Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. And as Elisha watched, he kept crying out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. When he could no longer see them, he took hold of his own clothes and he tore them in two. He picked up the mantle that had fallen off Elijah. And he went back and he stood on the bank of the Jordan. And he took the mantle Elijah had dropped and he struck the water. Where is the Lord God of Elijah, he asked. He struck the water himself and it parted to the right and the left and Elijah crossed over. So here's what we have here. Elijah has left his coat behind, his cloak, his, his mantle. Elisha picks it up and he goes over to the bank of the river and he goes, well, here it goes. Let's see what happens. And sure enough, the water draws up like a secret passageway, and he's able to go across, and he walks through. So basically, what's, what's the, here's the deal is, Elisha got what he asked for. He, he got what he asked for. As a matter of fact, we've skipped over this, and we'll probably talk about it more next week. But if you count the number of miracles that Elijah did, he did 14. If you count the number of miracles that Elisha did, did anybody have any guess on what it is? 28. 14 times 2. He got double. He got double in it all. Elijah got the double anointing. You know why? It goes back to the very beginning that we read it here. He didn't hold back. He didn't hold back. It's the first step with giving up the ox or the oxen. And that step of surrender and sacrifice and service. See, I believe that great blessings of faith come from bold moves of faith now it may not happen immediately we like we already said this took 18 years and and see I, I think i think sometimes we look at our lives and realize it could be so much more we realize we're living a good life we realize we're a decent person we realize that we're making money but then we also realize we're not making the eternal difference that we could we're not making the eternal difference that we could in anybody's life we can have an eternally significant life. You ever stop and think about what if Elijah had done what he did, and then Elisha's response was, no thanks? Well, obviously we wouldn't be reading about him. But what if he didn't act boldly? What if he hadn't burnt the plows? What if he hadn't made that investment? You know, I was thinking about this last night. The rich young ruler, you guys maybe have heard that parable before, where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what can I do to inherit eternal life? He says, oh, you've got to follow this. And he goes, oh, I've already done all that. He goes, okay, now I need you to go sell all your stuff and give it to the poor. And the response of the rich young ruler was to go away sad. He was sad. I started thinking about this last night, that at some point in time, the rich young ruler was no longer the rich young ruler. He was now the rich old ruler. And as the rich old ruler, as he's laying there preparing to die, if he asks, what if? 
What if I had just done what Jesus told me to do? What would my life be like now? Sure, I had all the stuff. Sure, I had all the things that I need. But as we've said before, you're going to die, and it's all going to go to somebody else anyway. What if I had invested my life the way that Jesus had called me to? See, I told you up front, my goal today is to get you to take that next big step, that, that, that next big step in your life. The point of the message, I said following God means a total abandonment of our entire lives to God. Are we doing that? I've been listening to a book, and maybe that's kind of influenced the way I've kind of approached this message today, um, called Something Needs to Change. Or something has to change. It's by, by David Platt. And it's uh, David Platt, if you don't know anything about him, he was the IMB president for a while, which is the International Mission Board. But a uh, big guy that was in Birmingham, Alabama, now up in Washington, D.C. at McLean Bible Church. And uh, really enjoy his books. He does Radical and did Follow Me. But this new one called Something Has to Change is about his trek to the Himalayas. And uh, a missionary that was there had invited him to come along. And I'm not going to go into too much detail of the book because uh, it's something I really strongly encourage you to read. But basically, this guy that invited him was a guy by the name of Aaron. And Aaron had graduated college, went with a bunch of buddies and said, hey, I want to go hike the Himalayas. I don't know why anybody would want to do that, but that was one of the choices that he decided to do. And along on the hike, day one, he comes across a trafficker, a child trafficker in the middle of this village, they'd already hiked up about halfway uh, on one of the hills, and there was a, uh, like a tea room, and he met this trafficker, and the trafficker just talked about how easy it is to traffic these children out of these hills, because people that are in poverty think that as long as I sell my child for a little bit, they'll be able to send money back from wherever they're at, not realizing they would never see their children again. And the, the whole story is, is that this Aaron, the day that he had left and gone up this hill, all of his buddies... We're like, can't believe this guy's telling us this. And then they say, well, tomorrow we're going to hike this. And he says, well, tomorrow I'm going back because there's somebody that's got to do something about what's taking place here. And for 20 years, he's been in these Himalayan mountains, reaching out to these village people, doing all that he can medically with a team and doing all that he can spiritually with a team and meeting physical needs and meeting spiritual needs. And, going through the, and the book is just amazing to, to read and to listen to and to hear what, what's going on there. But I got to thinking about it. This book would never have been written if Aaron hadn't have said, you know what, I just want to go on a hike. That's all I'm here for. Instead of I'm going to give up the next 20 years of my life to live in the Himalayan mountains and constantly walk up and down. So much so that, that where I've stopped at so far, there's a church that has started there. And people walk from villages all around going up these mountains. As a matter of fact, David Platt was describing his two-hour-long hike and the burning of his legs to get up to this church this place where they were going to have church that night. And the night that he was there, they, they went outside and they looked and they could see all these little lights coming up the path. And Aaron, the guy that's in charge, says, you know what those lights are right there? That's people coming to church. Walking up that same two-hour hill to get to church. And for two hours long, they sat in a little tiny house because they don't have buildings and stuff out there to, to do church in. And over 50 people were packed in this one-bedroom house praising and worshiping God for two hours, only to go and walk back down that hill two hours for another two hours to get back home. Now, if that was our church, I mean, balloon fiesta caused a little kink in our weekend sometimes. But I'm thinking if you guys had to walk two hours uphill both ways in the snow, you know, that whole uh, old thing, 
Himalayas, by the way, does have it. They were talking about knee-deep snow and everything like that. Pe- people wouldn't be here because sometimes we forget how amazing God is and all the things that he's doing for us because we got the good life. We have not burned the ships. We have not surrendered or sacrificed or given ourselves to service. And I'm afraid even today, once again, not dropping a guilt trip, not being in an angry fashion, that I know that God has something greater for me and I know that God has something greater for you, but we won't ever obtain it. And the reason why is because we won't follow that path of surrender, and we won't follow that path of sacrifice, and we won't follow that path of service, and we most certainly won't act boldly. And that's hard to say. But the reality is, we will walk in this door, we'll hear this message, and we'll walk out that door and think nothing of it. We'll go back to our hiking. Instead of just saying, God, what are you going to do with me next? Can I challenge you today to burn the ships? Can I challenge you today to burn the plows? Can I challenge you to follow Christ to something greater? Can I challenge you to respond before you leave this room? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are. And thank you for the way you continue to work in our lives and the way you continue to to challenge us and and grow us closer to you. Months ago, you, you laid it on the heart of myself and the heart of Jerome and the heart of our leadership to see people take the next step, to see people grow closer to you and that we could be an instrument for you to do that, to see people to change in their lives. And God, this was a no punches pulled message of seeing what Elisha did and seeing what we could also do. While we have the good life, God, don't ever let it be something that gets in the way of something greater. I pray today that if there's anybody in here that that isn't a Christian, that is not a follower of yours, that today is the day that they'd be willing to surrender all. Or maybe if there's somebody here that assumes that they're a Christian but never has really laid it down, that God, that today would be the day they would start. You're calling us to a next step. Maybe it's salvation. Maybe it's baptism. Maybe it's serving. Maybe it's surrendering. Maybe it's sacrifice. God, each person here is different. And each person is in a different place. And I pray that wherever they're at, that you meet them there and encourage them to take that next step closer to you. We pray in your name. Amen. I'm going to jump down here in the front, and I would love to talk to you. I would love to talk to you about who Jesus is, about how he is still changing my life, but how he can do the same for you. And my guess is, is that somehow, some way, God's speaking to you this morning. Can I tell you to hear what he's saying and listen and respond?